to the Therapeutic Parenting Podcast, which is coming to you from COECT, the Centre of Excellence in Child Trauma, which provides proven strategies to help people living and working with child trauma. In the second series, our experts are focusing on tackling specific problem areas like school transitions, parental isolation and, today, hypervigilance. I'm Serena Gay, your host, and I'm delighted to welcome back our guest expert, Glynis Huff, who spoke to us in the first series about a child's internal working model and how it works in a traumatised child. Glynis is a foster parent with decades of experience. She's a parent of multicultural children and has a profound understanding of the problems that arise in mixed families. She's a former social worker and a parent coach and has been involved with the National Association of Therapeutic Parenting, the NATP, since its inception. So a warm welcome back to the podcast, Glynis. Hello. Hello, Serena, and thank you for the lovely warm welcome. Well, judging from the download numbers of people who listened to that edition that I just mentioned about the internal working model, I think lots found it incredibly useful for understanding what makes a traumatised child tick. Now, I know that hypervigilance is a manifestation of their fears, but can you tell us what it is exactly? Well, hypervigilance is where uh, there is an increased state of alertness. So uh, what I mean by this is that uh, our children are absolutely, completely alert to everything, every minute detail that's going on around them. So they could even hear a pin drop in, within a crowd and be able to hear and wonder, you know, what is that? What is happening? And it is a body's way of protecting you from a, a threatening situation, whether it's a real threat or a perceived threat, because often, you know, it, it isn't actually a threat, but because our children are in uh, such a state of alertness, they perceive non-threats as threats. Why has that state of alertness come about in the first place? Well, the state of alertness has come about because our children have unmet needs from very early on in life. It could have actually even happened within the womb where a mum was very, very frightened or there was domestic abuse or maybe mum was a drug addict or substance misuser and therefore had very high cortisol levels herself. Mm. And also we have mums who have that illness uh, during pregnancy where they're being very ill, very sick throughout. And of course, if you're being very, very sick throughout, you yourself as a parent would be quite frightened. And this is passed on to your child. Thankfully, um, birth children who have experienced this uh, be because they have the chance to develop um, a positive attachment with parents means they are not frightened of adults. Unfortunately, our looked after children and our adopted children, any child who's not had the opportunity of developing a positive relationship, a positive attachment with a parent, lives in fear, fear for their lives, fear for survival. They, you know, they are in their survival brain all the time because if they don't keep themselves safe, they truly believe nobody else will keep them safe. It's, it's really that serious, Serena. So the purpose it serves really is a life-saving one. 
That's exactly it. That's exactly it. It's in order to keep themselves alive. They have to notice everything that's going on. Uh, you know, a knock on the front door could be the police, but it could be a social worker coming to take them away. A man's voice, strange man's voice, could be somebody coming to abuse them. It is their way of keeping themselves alive. We call it living in your survival brain. So they're constantly fighting for survival. That is the, that, that's the best way of putting it. And because of that, they are really hypervigilant to everything that goes on around them. Unfortunately, um, this impacts every area of their life. So we go to the supermarket, for example. We go into the supermarket, there's the tannoy going off, there's the uh, overhead lights, they're constantly flickering. And when you've got super sensitive hearing, like our children do, that noise is very, very, very loud. Then you have to take into account there's also other people talking in the supermarket. And that's like a rush of noise. The children are not able to block it out. So it's like a rush of noise along with all the other noises. There may be children screaming. There's the trolleys moving up and down the aisles. We don't necessarily hear them as adults because we're not living in a state of fear. But our children are. So all those noises run together and it's just sensory overload and our children can go into meltdown. That's why they hate supermarkets, because they're not able to keep themselves safe in their own minds. And we have this too in schools. You know, classrooms have windows onto the corridors and our children's heads are like spinning tops, actually seeing what's going on outside the classroom. Is the head teacher coming for me? Is that a social worker coming for me? Is my abuser going to come along and take me out of school? Am I in trouble? What's all that about? It's really hard, Serena, because it's, it's painful for them, really hard. It's incredibly stressful, isn't it, to live your life on that level all the time. Absolutely. So, so when, when they're being sort of super hypervigilant, what forms of behavior then might you see as a result? So when you're very, very frightened, you um, either uh, fight or flight. You know, so many of our children will fight and become aggressive. If they can't become aggressive physically, they become aggressive with their language or both. So they will lash out. And they might lash out because they're so hypervigilant, they're watching something happen, which maybe they're misinterpreting. And that then forces them into a mode of behaviour that we might consider to be antisocial. True. Absolutely true. And this happens to our children all the time. Um, it's perceived that they're being naughty or they're, you know, their behaviour is off the scale, uh, when in actual fact, they're trying to tell us, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And that's what it is for them. And they so, are so scared. So other than sort of a violent reaction, what other kind of behaviours might come out when they're in a hypervigilant phase? Well, you could have the exact opposite, actually, where a child will go into themselves and maybe rock to and fro to try and um, the movement to try and help them calm down. Or they become so scared that maybe they'll hide under the table. Maybe they'll run away. You know, they'll run away and hide somewhere to try and block out all this sensory input around them. We also have children who will, you know, immediately turn and blame somebody else for something. Even though they haven't done it themselves, they try to shift the blame onto 
another person so that it takes away from them. So I remember when I was reading Therapeutic Parenting Essentials by Sarah Nash, Jane Mitchell and Sarah Dillon, that Sarah in particular talked about, well, because she adopted a sibling group of five children, all of whom were hypervigilant. And she talked about what it was like in that scenario. Can you perhaps tell us what it would be like if you had, you know, several children who were hypervigilant in your family circle? Well, what really happens, Serena, is you, the parent, become hypervigilant because it actually can send them into compassion fatigue. You know, they become over overwrought and overwhelmed it all becomes too much especially then when you have professionals who just do not understand how difficult it is you know uh, for the parent because you are managing this extremely stressful situation uh, for yourself but also for your children because a parent might think that they're adopted or their foster child doesn't like them because of this behaviour. But that's not it at all, is it? No, it's not. It, it, it certainly isn't. I mean, we really do feel from time to time that our children don't like us. Because we put so much in all the time. It's constantly uh, working with them, constantly reassuring them and trying to support them through. And when our children um, slap it back in our faces, really, it's like a kick in the teeth. And you think, oh, I've done... All of this so that you can have a really nice time, but you're struggling. And and because you're struggling, it's all gone pear-shaped. You can go into the doldrums because it's your own internal working model kicking in then. You know, and you do become frightened. You do become very worried about your future and your children's future. And you do worry, are you ever going to come out of this? So we need then now to talk about what strategies um, you suggest to cope in situations where the child is hypervigilant. What would you say? Well, uh, I always say pace, pace, pace until you're blue in the face. For the simple reason, if you become proficient at using pace, which is therapeutic parenting model, and it's an anachronism and stands for playfulness, using a playful approach. So that's P, P for... Playfulness. Playfulness. A, A stands for? Acceptance. So acceptance means you accept how the child is feeling. And, you know, you accept them kind of warts and all. C is for curiosity. And by curiosity, we mean, you know, detecting what is the matter. What is the child's need at that moment in time? Now, what does E stand for? That's empathy. And empathy is the cornerstone of therapeutic parent. Without empathy, we couldn't therapeutically parent. So everything has to be steeped in empathy. We have to be alongside our children. We have to show our children that, yes, we can see that they're struggling. And you know what? We're here as a team and it's it's perfectly okay. I get what's happening to you and I'm sorry for that. But, you know, we'll, we'll work this out together. Offer them some nurture. You know, the nurture could be going for a walk. It could be just literally sitting at the table with them and just having parental presence. Or it could be popping the kettle on and making a hot chocolate and a biscuit or something and giving them that nurture so that they feel good. And, and 
you know, that that raises their feel-good factor as well. And that's what we're trying to do with our children so that their empathy will develop and their internal working model will start shifting. And, you know, because they've developed new neural pathways in the brain. It does take a long time, though, Serena. It doesn't. Yeah. You have to practice it and practice it and practice it. Okay. Well, I I, I want to to ask you sort of later on yeah. what the chances are for a child growing out of hypervigilance. But be, before we get to that point, I wondered, you know, if there are any like other specific strategies that you could suggest to help cope when a child's hypervigilance leads to it becoming dysregulated. What can be done then? Well, first of all, is letting the children know that you are there for them. You know, yeah. give them a little bit of space, step back, you know, reflect on what's happening. How can I support my child through this? Letting them know, do you know what? I, I am here for you. It's okay. You don't need to tell me. We don't need to talk about it right now. But I am here for you. Mm-hmm. And it's that consistency so yeah. that children know you are consistent you, you say what you mean and you yeah. mean what you say. Yeah. And that helps, really does help. We've, we've had plenty of examples of that here at home where, you know, it's no secret that our daughter was um, quite violent and letting her know that it's okay, you know, I don't like the violence and I certainly don't want it again, but you know what, I am here for you and I'm not giving up on you. No matter what, you know, we won't be giving up on you. You'll always be in our hearts because we know you have got a really good heart in there. It does actually help them to stop and think, you know, mm. do you know what, mummy does believe in me. And it's it's that belief, you know, that somebody believes in me, somebody is on my side. I have this sense of belonging because they are on my side, because mm. many of our children don't feel they ever belong. I guess a type of hypervigilance could be not really being able to sleep because you're worried that somebody might come into your bedroom as a child. Yes. So what might you suggest to cope with that? For, for us, what worked for us was, well, in the first months, and it was many months, I used to sit in the room with her. And, and I've done this with, with many of the children that um, I have uh, fostered. I've sat with them and I have um, reminded them that they're safe that it's okay, not got into big, long conversations. We've done the story time, whatever, but I've just been the presence in the room. And I've done that for several months, as I've said. Then I've transferred to outside the bedroom door and I've sat on the stairs, uh, usually with my laptop, I might add. And, you know, every time I hear them move, because they do move a lot, say, it's okay, I'm here, it's all right. Constantly reassuring them that you are there for them. Occasionally, I'd pop back into the bedroom. Occasionally, I'd say, do you know what? I'm just popping down to make sure daddy's okay or, you know, some other excuse, yeah. some some yeah. other reason. And I, I will be back in two minutes. And I would always make sure I'd be back in that two minutes because they're going to count. They're going to count to 120. Um, they're going to count or going to watch clock to make sure you are back. So when you get back in that time, within that time frame, it has reassured the child that you are uh, predictable and you are consistent and you are reliable. You have said you're going to do such and such. You're going to be back in a specific time and you've done that. Also, you know, when we progress then down to stairs after many months, um, we progress to downstairs, 
I have told the children, it's okay, I'll just check on you every five minutes or whatever time frame you want to use. It's always not too long a time frame. The younger the child is, you would be saying two to three minutes and just stand at the bottom of the stairs or stand in your hallway and say, it's okay, we're all safe, we're okay. You're safe, it's okay to go to sleep. And do that until they're asleep. It's, it's annoying to begin with, but yeah. eventually our children do understand that we are there to keep them safe and will yeah. always keep them safe because we do know some horrible things have happened to our children at night time. We do know that many of our children have been left alone in homes. Um, so they didn't know if it's too quiet, for instance, they're terrified they're going to be left on their own. Mm -hmm. So turning the TV up and making noises downstairs is a good idea so that they know there is parental presence. Okay. You know, they can hear you pottering about and it is good. A little bit of a song, maybe, you know, happy song, just so that they know it's a, everything's gentle, everything's calm, there's no aggression. Because the other thing, of course, our children are worried about is maybe there's, they've come from a home where there was domestic violence. Yeah. And maybe one of the parents have, is being beaten up. Maybe that parent is dead. It's so uh, serious and so entrenched for them that they really do worry that you're not alive and that you are at harm, especially the parent that they have begun to form an attachment to. So given all the strategies that you've suggested, if these are put in place, is there hope that as the child grows up, hypervigilance can be left behind? I don't think it'll ever be left behind, but it will lessen. It, it will lessen an awful lot more. You'll still find that as uh, adults, you know, they won't want to go into a restaurant and sit with their back to the door, for instance, um, because you don't know who's going to come through the door. But they won't live in such a state of, of terror. They will be able to use their prefrontal cortex and not see every single perceived threat as a threat. They will be able to go into their hippocampus, a part in their brain which stores your memories, and go through the, the, the hippocampus and think, oh yeah, that's it's okay, I'm safe with this, it's, it's all right, you know, I'm not going to come to any harm. But an unexpected event may cause, may cause distress. But the beauty about it is once they understand that they have had safe parenting and that they are a, a valued person, they can come out the other side much, much quicker. It, 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 they respond uh, positively much quicker than somebody who hasn't had the benefit of therapeutic parenting. Yeah, right. Now, what about, what about the parent themselves or the parents? How can they cope for their own sake? I mean, you know, caring for a hypervigilant child is super stressful for them too. What, what do you advise a parent do to maintain their sanity, really? The most important thing is to be in contact with others, others who understand. I, I'm sure others, other people on podcasts have mentioned that we organise listening circles. Ah. Um, and listening circles are like support groups um, where we meet up with uh, other parents uh, of developmentally traumatised children. And we'd have um, tea and cake. Uh, and, a, and a chuckle and a laugh but also yeah. as well as a chuckle and a laugh you share your experiences and because we are so attuned to pace using pace we are able to offer empathy and 
we're able to do that because we are able to get alongside. We've walked in their shoes, so we know exactly how they're feeling. So the fact that somebody can talk to you with empathy and, and listen to you with empathy, active listening, actually helps you more than anything else in the whole wide world. You know, it really does. Somebody being alongside you rather than saying, oh, yeah, all kids do that. Or, you know, well, do you know what you need to do? You need to do a little bit of training on uh, parenting. I tell you what, we'll put you on a parenting course. When you're in, in real stress, you don't need to be told that. It, it's the worst thing to say to a parent. So we call it self-care or essential care. And, you know, we're, we're at NATP now doing essential care sessions and uh, they are being run virtually at the moment. But this is where people um, can join a session. And this somebody, a wonderful volunteer, has given up time to do some Indian head massage. Another oh. volunteer runs prayer groups. Another volunteer uh, does meditation. And one that's been really successful is creative writing and creative drawing. So it's a way of getting out of yourself thinking of something else yeah. my top tip though is watch a comedy laughter <laughs> laughter is the best medicine yeah. and it really will help you through so whatever your pleasure is in, in in comedy watch a comedy and it will lift you because you can't belly laugh and be sad at the same time <laughs> so you know it's it, for me it's the best medicine for me, my husband pops on on a comedy, which I love. And within minutes, I'm absolutely howling around the place laughing. Tell us, please, it, what, what do you love? <laughs> what do you love to watch? Tell us, Mrs. go on. M Mrs. Brown's Boys. <laughs> so I just sit and howl because actually it brings me right back to my childhood when I lived in Ireland. So and it really is, you know, it really is very similar to how life was, you know. Ma ma mommy, mommy's boys, you know, and it was really Is that funny. So? Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> well, it just I, tickles me. So, yeah. Brilliant. So, definitely self care it is a must because we have to have a calm amygdala. That's where your, your fear based brain is. You have to have a calm amygdala before you can help your child regulate to calm their amygdala, to come out of their survival brain. Great that's, advice. That's the top tip. <laughs> that's great advice. Thank you, Glynis. Um, for explaining an aspect of a traumatised child's behaviour that may not have been understood and for giving us such great tips on how to cope. So many thanks. It's a pleasure. There'll be links to the listening circles that Glynis mentioned in the show notes, but also you'll find them on the COECT website podcast page. To find out more and to access help, please visit our website, www.coect.co.uk. And if you'd like to receive this podcast every week, just press the follow button, which you'll find on the Apple or Spotify podcast apps or wherever you access the Therapeutic Parenting Podcast. Please rate, review and follow us. I know I say it every week, but it does mean more people will find us and benefit from all our helpful advice. Bye for now. <laughs>